Lord Jesus, <clears throat> we thank you again for the opportunity to be together, to gather with others who are longing to hear from you. So God, we pray that, uh, that you would speak. We pray that for the next few moments that we'd be able to, to not just put life on hold and operate as if this is separate, but God, we pray that we would see how uh, what we hear from your word is directly applicable to our lives and even the junk that we bring with us this morning. So God, I pray for those who are struggling, those who need encouragement this morning, or those who are maybe even on top of the world and simply need to be reminded that it is you who got them there. So God, for all who are on those extremes and anyone in between, I pray that your word would be directly applied to their hearts and to their minds. May we walk away different than we came, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know that in the life of Joseph, we've, we've covered really a lot of the heavy stuff. I mean, it's been, we've, we've been rejected. You know, we, we've walked away on the, the, one of the Sundays we walked away, we, we, we just rejected. Well, it's just, I, I saw some of your faces walking away, you're just depressed. It's just awful. And you've been forgotten, wrongfully accused. You've been sold into slavery and, and then thrown into prison. And we've covered a lot of the heavy, heavy stuff from the life of Joseph. And it really is. It's the reality of life. We know that in real life, you've been rejected. Face that. You've had times where you've been wrongfully accused of something, and later you sort of pay for a crime that really you didn't commit. Maybe it was somebody else's mistake, and you just get caught up in it, and you wind up having to pay for that. Maybe you've experienced times of being forgotten or abandoned, and you've sort of gone to the depths, maybe even of depression. And maybe you're even there now. It can seem as if... And, and the narrator of the story draws out the story of Joseph to let us deal with the tension as well. It can seem as if those times will last forever. Joseph's lasts for 13 years. For some in this room, you say, if it's going to go on for 13 years, oh my goodness, I don't know if it will. For some, you say, well, if it had only lasted 13 years, I'd be happy. I can't guarantee you exactly how long those times will last. I know that we all go through the valley, the winter time. Sort of hard for us to experience this time of year because it's been really mild. But, you know, in typical years, it's cold and kind of dark during the winter time. The valley is tough to go through. And those times can seem like they'll last forever. And that's what we've covered so far in the life of Joseph. And we've gotten to the point where Joseph still is not completely rescued from all that he will be rescued from, and maybe you find yourself stuck there. I have two goals today. First, and, and not really first and second, but the first goal that I've got listed is I want to encourage those of you that are in the valley today. You know who I'm talking to. If you're there this morning, you, you know, yep, he's talking to me. I want to encourage those of you who are in the valley to let you know that through the story of Joseph, though your circumstances may not mirror his exactly, though your rescue may not come in the exact same form, I want you to know that God does not forget, He has not forgotten you, nor will He ever forget you, and yes, He will deliver you from where you are. He will lead you through where you are. 
you will not likely spend your entire life in the valley. There is hope. We see this portrayed in the New Testament in the Gospels. Jesus died on the cross and was buried. And for some, it seemed like that was the end. But we know the story, the good news of the story, that Jesus did not stay dead. (laughs) He was raised again, and there is hope. You may feel as if the darkness will never end in your life, but it won't always be that way. You will one day move past the rejection and the hurt, the pain that results from it. You'll move past the wrong that has been done to you, those who have abandoned you and forgotten you. You'll move past that one day. And it won't be on your own strength. It'll be because, it'll be because the Lord Jesus Christ, who has carried you all the while, will lead you out of the valley. I want to encourage you today if you're in the valley. I want to be careful not to sell you a prosperity type gospel that if you'll only follow Jesus Christ you'll never have a single problem. You'll have all the money you've ever wanted and you'll live in the greatest house you can imagine. I don't want to sell you a lie today but I do want to sell you the truth today and proclaim to you that you may be in the valley but Jesus did not stay dead. There is hope because he lives and because of the resurrection. I also want to challenge, as my second goal today, all of us who are here to honor God when He honors you. There will be a day when God will lead you from the valley to the mountain, lead you out of the winter into the spring and summer. So my challenge to all of us today is when that happens, And you find yourself no longer in the depths of the valley, but now with Jesus on the mountain as he blesses you and honors you to not forget him in the process. To be ready when your time of blessing comes. You say, my time of blessing ain't coming. It ain't happening. Joseph could have thought the same thing. And as we'll see, just like that, he went from the valley to the mountain, but he was ready. So today I hope to encourage you and challenge you to be ready. Because there are some who survive okay in the valley and then thrive for a little while when they reach the mountaintop and you've seen it over and over and they crash at some point because they can't handle it when God blesses them. The truth is that success and honor are sometimes heavier and harder to deal with than failure in the depths of the valley. Looking back over this particular series and the experiences that I've had, and maybe you could relate this as well, to that parallel the life of Joseph. I've learned a few things, and I want to just kind of give us a baseline truth this morning, that if you are in the valley and you're struggling, these are a couple of things that as I've studied this, I've just sort of learned. They're not on your bulletin. This is just free stuff. Okay, how about that? All right, totally free. We've already taken the offering. All right, it's good. Totally free. All right? Just joking. Some of you, way too serious. All right, come on. It's okay. All right. Anyway. Here are a couple of things that, I, that, I've, that I've learned. I really believe that you will never truly be ready for what God has planned on the mountain without learning the lessons of the valley. I don't believe that you'll ever truly be ready for what God has planned for you on the mountain unless you learn the lessons of the valley, which means you've got to go through the valley. I don't know if you're like me at all, but I always look for a way out, not a way through. I, I, I like the way out. I like the trap door. Where, where does this end? How can I just get off the ride? I just, I, it, it's likely that God will not let you out, but will 
always take you through. And it's only through the lessons of the valley that you learn what he really wants you to learn and you get prepared for what he has for you later on. And along with that, one of the things that I've learned and that God has reminded me over and over as I've studied this particular uh, chapters 37 through 50 in Genesis on the life of Joseph is that it parallels what Paul was talking about in the New Testament. He talks about gaining Christ and sharing in his sufferings and understanding him more. You will, you will more fully know Christ by traveling with him through the experiences that remind us of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You cannot, I, I want to tell you this, and I really believe this, I don't think that you can fully know Christ without going through experiences that will remind you of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Because that's when we identify with him. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope you're tracking with me a little bit. This isn't far out stuff. This is the real gospel oriented. Here it is. You cannot fully know Christ or gain him or share in his sufferings or fully understand him unless he takes you through those things that mirror, parallel, and remind you of his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You have to go through it to know Christ. And if the purpose of our lives, we've been created to know him, well, the reality is that he'll take us through the valley so that we can know him. If that's any encouragement to you whatsoever, I sure hope so. I sure hope it is in the midst of your valley that, that you'll be ready for what God has planned on the mountaintop because you've learned the lessons of the valley. And in the process, you will have gained and known Christ more fully than you could have ever had you bypassed the valley. Joseph, as we will see, was prepared by God for what was coming later. He, he full, more fully knew God. And he previewed the Messiah's journey by what he faced. We've seen Joseph rejected, wrongfully accused, imprisoned, forgotten, abandoned. But that's not the end of the story for Joseph. And it's not the end of the story for you. God had promised to bless Joseph's family. And Joseph's family was promised by God to be the family through which the promised Savior of the world would come. And Joseph would eventually rise to prominence to make that happen. And after all he faced, as we'll see in today's story, it's amazing. It's amazing to see how Joseph handled the honors, the authority, and the blessing that came his way. And we look with me in the scripture in Genesis chapter 41. Genesis 41, we're going to begin reading this morning in verse 14. So right in the middle of the chapter. That's about where we left off last week. And so what we've seen is Joseph has... Uh, has been sold into slavery by his brothers. He's been wrongfully accused and thrown into prison. He's risen to prominence in both of those locations, only to be forgotten by the people who had some sort of power to get him out of prison. We see that Pharaoh, in the beginning of chapter 41, has had a couple of dreams, and he's pretty nervous about it. He doesn't understand what they mean. And so he calls on everybody he can find to try to help him figure out what does this mean, what's going to happen as a result of what I have dreamt. The chief cupbearer, as you, if you read through this particular passage, was a guy that Joseph wound up in prison with for a time. And Joseph interpreted the dream for him, and the chief cupbearer sort of comes to his senses and remembers, oh yeah, Pharaoh, by the way, I know a guy who I used to be in prison with. I guarantee you he's still there, and he can interpret your dreams. And then we pick it up in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent for Joseph, this guy who's in prison. And they quickly brought him from the dungeon. He shaved, changed his clothes, and went to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to him, I've had a dream and no one can interpret it, but I've heard it said about you that you can hear a dream and interpret it. 
I am not able to, Joseph answered. It is God who will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, In my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile when seven well-fed, healthy-looking cows came up from the Nile and began to graze among the reeds. After them, seven other cows, ugly, very sickly and thin, came up. I've never seen such ugly ones in all the, as these in all the land of Egypt. Imagine this dream. He's freaking out. I've never seen such ugly cows. You love the Bible. Then the thin, ugly cows ate the first seven well-fed cows. When they had devoured them, you could not tell that they had devoured them. Their appearance was as bad as it had been before. Then I woke up. In the dream, I also, I also had seen seven heads of grain, full and good, coming up on one stalk. After them, seven heads of grain, withered, thin, and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven full ones. I told this to the magicians, but no one can tell me what it means. Verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads are seven years. The dreams mean the same thing. The seven thin, ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven worthless, scorched heads of grain are seven years of famine. It is just as I told Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming throughout the land of Egypt. After them, seven years of famine will take place, and all the abundance in the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. The abundance in the land will not be remembered because of the famine that follows, for the famine will be very severe. Because the dream was given twice to Pharaoh, it means that the matter has been determined by God, and he will soon carry it out. So now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this. Let him appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the harvest of the land of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the excess food during these years, these good years that are coming. Store the grain under Pharaoh's authority as food in the cities and preserve it. The food will be a reserve for the land during the seven years of famine that will take place in the land of Egypt. Then the country will not be wiped out by the famine. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find anyone like this? A man who has the Spirit of God in him? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one as wise and as intelligent and wise as you. You will be over my house, and all my people will obey your commands. Only with regard to the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh also said to Joseph, See, I am placing you over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's hand, clothed him with fine linen garments, and placed a gold chain around his neck. He had Joseph ride in on his second chariot, and servants called out before him a breck. That's just a, 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 title that, a, a statement that sort of means attention. So he placed him over all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your permission. No one will be able to raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Pharaoh gave the name Zephaneth Paneah, gave, gave Joseph that name, and gave him a wife, Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest at On, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Joseph left Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout the land of Egypt. During the seven years of abundance, the land produced outstanding harvest. Joseph gathered all the excess food in the land of Egypt during the seven years and placed it in the cities. He placed the food in every city from the fields around it. So Joseph stored up grain in such abundance, like the sand of the sea, that he stopped measuring it because it was beyond measure. Two sons were born to Joseph, and the years of famine arrived. 
Asenath, daughter of Potipharah, priest that owned, bore them to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, meaning God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. And the second son he named Ephraim, meaning God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Then the seven years of abundance in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in every country, but throughout the land of Egypt, there was food. Extreme hunger came to all the land of Egypt, and the people cried out to Pharaoh for food. Pharaoh told all Egypt, go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. Because the famine had spread across the whole country, Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The whole world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain, for the famine was severe over all the earth. This passage that we just read is the culmination, in one sense, of all of Joseph's life up until this point. And it's what it's been leading toward. It's not done yet. But up until this point, it's what it's been leading toward. And what I find remarkable, absolutely remarkable, is that it's not Joseph-centered, but it's God-centered. This is a God-centered passage of Scripture. Joseph is the main human character, certainly. But he's been totally emptied of himself, and he focuses only what God would have him to do. He rises to this position of honor and authority. But it's evident that he got there, not by his own manipulation and power plays and all that he could do, but he got there because God wanted him there. It's in this story that we see in the life of Joseph a principle that we must remember when God leads us out of the valley and brings us to some place of honor or privilege or authority or influence. A principle that we must remember. It's something that's rarely applied in today's world. It's that honor is God's to give, never ours to seek. Honor is God's to give, Him alone, and never ours to seek. Now in church... We may say, well, that's obvious, sure, we know that, we're all humble here. But when you walk out those doors, or these over here, it's a little tougher to apply this principle. Easy when you're sitting in here. Easy for me to talk about it when I'm preaching from God's Word, and I read you that, well, it's easy. But it's a challenge to us today. The word honor is, is a term that just means respect and esteem and high regard, or maybe even a reward. It's paid uh, in the scripture often to superiors, God obviously, Jesus Christ, uh, the king in any particular nation, uh, church officers in the New Testament, the elderly, parents, and so on. All are to receive or do receive in the scripture honor. It can be a reward for a certain behavior. You do this and you're honored or rewarded because of it. It can include things like um, uh, different outward symbols like bowing before someone or giving them a specific title or privileges or or whatever it may be, or just being attentive to them, giving them honor. Uh, it includes a person's rank. You, you may They have honor because of where they're ranked in a particular organization or whatever it may be. Their wealth, their public respect, we see that. People are honored because of those things throughout Scripture and certainly in our world today. Inwardly, uh, the, the Bible talks about what true honor is about, and that's about the integrity of, of your character. That's what true honor is all about. Scripture is consistent, and it shows us over and over that honor is always God's to give. That those who seek it actually are dishonorable. They have no honor. 
Uh, we, we see that over and over. You've, you've, you live and work around people, I'm sure, that, that seek their own honor all the time. The Bible makes it clear that honor is only God's to give. And that only those who are truly faithful to Him can really receive the honor that He gives. Now, all of us, every one of us, no matter how spiritually mature you may be today, all of us, in our human nature, we like to have respect. I think that's pretty obvious. But we like to be held in high regard. We, we like to be recognized for who we are and what we've done or what we could do. We, we all, in some way, would like to be elevated at times to a greater position of authority or responsibility or influence. All of us have dealt with those kinds of things. And after years of slavery and imprisonment, we pick up the story in Genesis 41, 14, where this is finally happening to Joseph. Surely he wanted all those things as well in his human nature. We know that. But despite all that he went through, he never sought vindication for himself. Do you see that in the story? See this amazing guy? Never sought vindication. Never sought to prove, well, I told you so. I was right all along. Never sought that. Never sought his own honor. All of his actions, all of his words are God-centered throughout his entire life. He knew that honor was God's to give, never ours to seek. And that's the opposite of what society teaches. The exact opposite. The diametrically opposed, can't be in the same room, opposite of what society teaches. It is. You're going to walk out of here and face a bombardment of wherever you may go, whatever you may see on television, of things that will tell you, people that will show you that really what life is about is seeking your own honor, even if you don't admit that's what you're doing. That's the subtle nature of it. We are all self-promoters by nature. Our sinful nature, we're just self-promoters, even though we try to hide it, maybe through false humility, whatever it may be. And this is, I think, a particular temptation to try to seek your own honor, especially if you can relate to the story of Joseph. If you can relate to his rejection, you're going to face the temptation to seek your own honor. If you can relate to his story of being wrongfully accused and, and sort of paying for things and getting caught up in stuff that wasn't your fault, you didn't do, you're going to face the temptation to seek your own vindication and your own honor. If you've ever been abandoned, ever been forgotten, ever been looked over, passed over for whatever it may be in life, you will face the temptation to take matters into your own hands and seek your own honor. That's why there's a need for a challenge today to those of us who have been in the valley because one day, when God leads us out, what will you do with that? Joseph, his experience, tells us that there's something to be had that's different than spending years looking for what you think you deserve, the payback that you feel like you've earned. His experience, his story shows us something different, that God is the one who gives honor. It's never ours to seek. What do you do when it becomes obvious that God is blessing you? And He's leading you past that rejection. That you're now not going to be in a place of, of obscurity anymore, but maybe in a position of influence at work or at home, or in the church, in life, wherever it may be. What do you do? It's great to remember that principle, that honor always comes from God. I never need to seek it. But what are some action steps you can take when you face those situations, whether they're on a grand scale that everyone knows about or only what you and your family are aware of, that you're now facing this blessing from God and this honoring from Him? There are some things that you can do. First, defer to God. 
defer to God. If you don't know what defer means, it just simply means move out of the way and let God step up in front. That's really what it means. Or, or take a seat and let God stand out in front of you. Or hit the floor, get on your face, and let God come up and stand here in front of you. Verses 14 to 16, I think, are one of the more amazing uh, little passages. He stands before Pharaoh, Joseph does, completely emptied of himself through all that he's faced, and his response to Pharaoh, when Pharaoh says, look, I, I've understood and heard it said that you're a man with some great skill. That if I've got a dream and need to know what it means, I just need to talk to you and you can let me know. Well, Pharaoh's pretty accurate. You get that? He's accurate. Joseph can do those things. That's what he's done before. But there's nothing about, in Joseph's response, nothing about his own ability, his own skills. He's completely dependent on God. I am not able to, he says. It is God who will answer Pharaoh. I'm not able to do that. He understands and he knows the skills that God has given him, but he understands and knows that it's God who's given him the skills. <laughs> and so it's not he that will do it. It is God through him. Now, this would be the beginning of the end for many people. You understand who Pharaoh was? Now, we've got some pretty important people in and around Murray, Kentucky. Some of you are here today. Thank you for gracing us with your presence this morning. But we do. We've got some pretty important people. We've got some elected officials. I joke with a few of our, our folks and say, well, you're just a couple of steps from this person or that person. And, but this, this is different. This is Pharaoh. He's legendary by now, our standard. I mean, this is, this is the king of Egypt, huge, powerful nation. And here's Joseph, a lowly slave turned prisoner, standing before the king. Be the beginning of the end for a lot of people. Isn't it amazing how people change in the presence of those they consider great? In the presence of those who are powerful, it's easy for us to change. It's easy for us to no longer think of God or to get out of His way, but to say, you know what, Pharaoh? Yeah, I can do that for you. It will work out the details of the contract later on, but yeah, I'll, go, yeah, I'll, I'll do this one as a favor easy for us to forget who got us to wherever we may be. It's easy for us to have even false humility, but truly be manipulating the scenes and what happens for our favor. Joseph is not downplaying what skills and talents God had given him. He's just recognizing the true source of all of that. I don't know what influence or what honor you may wind up having, but start, no matter where you are, start with deferring to God. To say, you know what? This is not about me. Yeah, God gifted me in this area. But let me tell you, if he took the gifting away tomorrow, I'd be nothing. Without him, I am nothing. Without him, I can do nothing. In your prayers, defer to God. Make them God-centered. In public, when someone asks you or talks to you about what you do and how good you may be at something, make it as God-centered as you possibly can. In personal conversations, when you receive a compliment, yes, say thank you, but yes, say, you know what, let me tell you, if it weren't for the Lord's activity in my life, none of this junk would matter. None of my skills and abilities would matter. When you're facing a new task and you're not quite sure, defer to God, ask for His strength and His empowerment. Even in the things that are now second nature to you, that are just so built in that you do them without thinking and you're really good at them, 
Maybe this week, take a step back and say, you know what, God, thank you for that. It allows me to do my job and to get paid to do it and provide for my family, whatever it may be. Defer to God. Secondly, stand boldly on God's word. Stand boldly on God's word. This is another thing that's easy to do in church. Just warn you, this is easy. We love this one in church. Preachers love it as well. It's easy for me, I'll tell you the truth. Stand boldly on God's word. Real easy in church. Not as easy when you leave the doors. Joseph stands before Pharaoh. And you know what he tells Pharaoh? You know what he tells him? Pharaoh was considered to be a god, by the way. Not just the king, but considered to be one of the, the many gods in Egypt. They had all kinds of gods, these, these gods of the harvest and so on. You know, what, you know what Joseph stands before the king who considered himself to be a god and tells him? You're not in charge. You're not in charge. Let me, I can interpret your dreams, but let me establish this first. This is what God has said. Yahweh, God, Jehovah, the eternal creator God, has said is going to happen. And there's nothing you or all your false gods can do about it. You can pray to the God of your harvest all the time, but God has given you this dream twice. It means it's going to happen. You ever been that bold? Especially in the presence of somebody who can kill you just like that. Are you kidding me? What about that? Wow. The boldness that he had to say, this is what God has said. God, in verse 25, has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Incredible. Joseph never became enamored with his surroundings. as He stands there in the court of the king. I read this week... And I don't know about you, but I, one of the things that I love about our country is, and, and this will sound maybe odd, I love the pomp and circumstance that goes with the highest elected office. I love all the stuff about the presidency. I don't care who the president is. I love all the stuff about the presidency. You understand what I mean? I love the fact they get to fly on Air Force One. It's his own jet. Are you kidding me? I mean, he's got everything he could ever need. That's incredible. I love the Oval Office. And all the, the fanciness of the White House and all the formality and the salute that he does when he gets off of, of Marine One, the helicopter, and all the different... I mean, I love that. I just, there's something about it that I just, I just love. I read something this week about a guy named Chuck Colson. Maybe some of you have heard of, of, of Charles Colson, who served in the Nixon administration. They actually got caught up in all the Watergate stuff and spent some time in prison. But he, I, I read a, a, an illustration that he was talking about, and he said it was amazing to watch as they would bring people into the White House, these powerful people, whether they're in the world or wherever, and, and they would bring them into the White House, and they would just sort of show off all the stuff, all the power and the trappings and the surroundings that come with being the President of the United States. And he said by the time these people went through all this stuff and sat down in the Oval Office, they were just as meek and humbled as they could be, and they would never contradict the President. And he said, this is the, the most sad part, the religious leaders were the ones who would cower the most. Got caught up in it. They, they got caught up in the fact they're in the presence of someone who, who's prominent, and they changed. Joseph never changes. He stood boldly on God's word no matter who he was around. Never caved because Pharaoh had some human power over him. Being bold about God's word, let me tell you this, may cost you. 
Yes, it might. I've got a good friend in Atlanta who, because he talked with someone about Jesus on the job, lost his job. And he made a load of money. And now he's jobless. It cost him. But I can say with confidence that my friend would never back down, even if he had known that was going to happen before. He stood boldly on God's word. Joseph here doesn't tell Pharaoh what he might have wanted to hear. Well, Pharaoh, you know, your dreams, yeah, you know, it could mean there's some bad stuff coming, but, you know, I don't really want to tell you that because you're the king. (laughs) Always bold on God's word. Joseph had a choice to make in the face of Pharaoh, and so do we every single day. You may never stand in the presence of the President of the United States in the Oval Office. You may never stand in the presence of someone as powerful as that, but every day you face the same choice. Will you stuff it? Or will you truly and boldly live it out? Even though we never seek our own honor, we're to be bold when given the opportunity to stand on God's word. Thirdly, be wise but unassuming. Be wise but unassuming. There's a difference between being wise and being a know-it-all. Nobody here, of course, is a know-it-all. You've never struggled with that. You never just like to give your own opinions at every opportunity that's possible. Nobody here does that. Certainly nobody's children, you know, are like that, you know. Of course, mine are, you know, mine are not. <clears throat> but there's a difference between being wise and being a know-it-all. Just because you have wisdom doesn't mean you're a know-it-all. It doesn't mean you should stuff it. I, I would challenge you that as you leave this church today and as you go into your place of employment or your place of influence, that you insert godly wisdom in every opportunity you can. Our world needs godly wisdom. Have you noticed? We need godly wisdom from godly people who will, instead of removing themselves from a situation, say, you know what, I'll take a chance, and I'm going to throw in some stuff that I know is based on Scripture, and I'm going to give you some godly wisdom. You realize that when Joseph says, you know what, Pharaoh, not only is there a famine coming, and there's nothing you can do about it, God's going to do it, but let me tell you what you ought to do because of that. Pharaoh didn't ask for that. He just said, what does my dream mean? I don't know what Pharaoh's response was at that point. If he was going to say, and then Joseph just cut him off. and said, hold on, let me tell you what you need to do. Joseph sees what's going to be best for the king, for the country, for everyone around him. And he inserts godly wisdom into the situation. Whether the Pharaoh asks for it or not, here it comes. He says, do this, do that. The country will be saved. He took a chance. I encourage you and challenge you. Be a, be a thinking Christian. Don't turn your mind off in the world. Think about what might be best for those who are around you. How can you be salt and light in this world based upon good practice and principles and wise thinking? Joseph obviously knew his stuff. But even despite all of his great wisdom, he's not a self-promoter. He's unassuming. He says, you need to find a guy who can do all this. And then he just stands there. You know whose resume he just gave? His own. He could do all that stuff. But he doesn't stand there and say, oh, you know, um, by the way, I'm available. I've just come from prison. I really have nothing to do. I'd love to be able to serve your country in this capacity. He doesn't say that in any way. He simply inserts godly wisdom and leaves the results up to God. Takes a chance and just says, you know what, Pharaoh, this is is based upon what God's going to do. Here's some godly wisdom for you. You need to do this and that. He was determined to trust God, never to be a manipulator of circumstances. Be wise but unassuming. Fourthly, 
Remain willing to do anything that God calls you to do. Willing to do anything God calls you to do. You know what Pharaoh says to Joseph and to all of his advisors? There's, you know, compared to everybody else, Joseph is the wisest man that we can find. There's nobody else who can do and seize the world the way he does. So Joseph, you're my guy. So far, Joseph has spent 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. Not a real good training ground, seemingly, for those who will enter political service. But Joseph realizes here's God's opportunity to assert himself through Joseph in the land of Egypt. And you know what he says? Bring it on. Because it's not I who will do these things, but God who will do them through me. What's amazing also is that that Joseph, even though he encounters this huge moment, that moment's not too big for him. He'd already practiced as a slave. He'd already practiced as a prisoner. He already knew how to run things. He had put those skills into practice long before the game got raised a little bit. I really believe that Joseph just evidences for us the need that people have for spiritual leadership in all aspects and all levels of life. You may be high up on the food chain at your particular place of employment. Nothing wrong with that. You live for God there, influence that place as much as you possibly can for the glory of God and His kingdom. You may be at the very bottom, but those people need spiritual leadership too. They need to see the love of Jesus lived out in someone who loves Jesus. God had been with Joseph way back then, and He was going to be with Joseph as He led him on to face a larger task. And Joseph was willing to do whatever it was that God called him to do, even if it seemed a little bigger than anything he had ever done. Finally, remain mindful of the Lord when you arrive. Remain mindful of the Lord when you arrive. Before you close everything up, give me a chance to finish. All right? It's just like teaching school to sophomores. I've told you that. They get close to that bell ring and close everything up. They're ready to go. Hang on for just a second. Remain mindful of the Lord when you arrive. Verses 50 through 57. Joseph is blessed with two sons. And and the names he gives them serve as a living reminder. He names one Manasseh. God has made me forget all my hardship. Really? (laughs) What? Just yesterday, Joseph, seemingly, here you are as a prisoner a slave God's made you forget it all wow living reminder you know what I'm going to speak the truth God has triumphed over all this junk that I faced and here's this little kid to remind me every time I see him and Ephraim God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction Joseph saw circumstances in a God-centered way always trusting the Lord, always faithful to Him. And even to the point of of having reminders around all over of what God had done. Don't you love people and stories like that? I do. There's one that's going on in the NBA right now. Have you heard of Lynn Sanity? You heard of Jeremy Lynn? Some of you are not sports fans. You haven't followed this. Maybe this is more of a cultural kind of thing now. He's an Asian-American-born basketball player for the New York Knicks. I read this in in the Wall Street Journal this week, and here's what it said. Lynn is an underdog in the crisp, 
Hollywood sense, the underappreciated athlete who was shunned by big-time colleges, undrafted by the pros, dumped after tours with Golden State and Houston, and briefly demoted by the Knicks. He was sleeping on other people's couches because of his ever-temporary situation. And now he's the best story in the NBA. What has been called linsanity, this author writes, feels like an organic, emphatic reversal of the contrived way stars have been packaged and processed in sports and beyond. In the past decade, we have been bombarded by manufactured celebrities, empty reality phonies, and virtual rages that turn out to be well-planned orchestrations. It's still acceptable to, to submit slick as substance. And he says, Jeremy Lin is not slick or phony. The Baptist Press gives a little bit more fullness to this story. Lynn has gone from an unemployed NBA wannabe to a household name and worldwide superstar in only a matter of days. Remind you of the story of Joseph? His unexpected emergence as the starting point guard for the Knicks has sparked the struggling team and launched Lynn's sanity. Lynn's is a story of perseverance and persistence, of hard work and humility. And we could stop there and have a really kind of feel-good story. But most of all, the article says, Lens is a story of strong faith in Jesus Christ, of devotion to Bible study and prayer, and of commitment to spreading the gospel wherever he gets the opportunity. Here's what Lens said himself. Not just in basketball, but I think in life. When you're called to be a Christian, you're automatically called to be different from everyone else. In today's world of basketball, it makes you really different. Because the things that society values aren't necessarily in line with what God values. Much of it comes down to humility. We as Christians are called to be humble. And if we really understand the gospel, we will be humble. We should be humble and understand that everything that is good comes from God. A story of a guy who unexpectedly rises to prominence, but all the while remains faithful to the Lord. A modern day story of Joseph in the Old Testament. But before you walk out of here, simply to be a fan of Jeremy Lin and figure out who in the world is that guy, I need to pull for his team. Before you walk out, just to be a fan of Jeremy Lin, I want you to remember who this is really all about. The story we read about Joseph, the notes we see here about Jeremy Lin, those aren't really about those people, but ultimately about Jesus Christ and about him alone. We're all called not to seek our own honor, but to seek Jesus Christ and His honor. Now, I'll tell you this. You can choose to seek your own honor. You can do it. You can let what, what's been said today go in one ear and right out the other. You can scratch and claw and step on people and do anything you can to take a step higher. You can, you can uh, pro, pro, profess uh, that it's not about me, it's just about God. And it'd be totally false humility. You can uh, see that in how you'll give no praise to other people. Life is just about you. Maybe you've seen this in your own jealousy, your anger at what other people get, or your ongoing conversation with God about he, how He could do better by you. You've been there? <laughs> Maybe you see very little gratefulness in your prayers, if you're even still praying at all. Maybe you have an overly pessimistic attitude. You just think you're having a hard day, but maybe it's because you're seeking your own honor. Maybe you operate as if everything is up to you. You're a control freak in life. If it's up to, to, to me, I'll get it done. But I, it's, I've got to have control of it. Maybe you're a know-it-all. You have a critical spirit. 
or you're constantly comparing yourselves to others, let me warn you that seeking your own, on, your own honor is a slippery slope. It starts with just the desire for recognition, to be noticed for what you, you are and what you've done. But it can lead you to a path very quickly where you will do anything and everything you can, even if no one else knows, to achieve and accomplish or to get or experience the things you think you deserve and are owed, not just by other people, but by God. It's a slippery slope. You can choose to seek your own honor, but what will you be left with when the chase is over? Luke chapter 9 says that you can gain the whole world. Chase it all. All the honor you can ever seek to accomplish and forfeit your own soul. And that's the whole point, he says. You'll wind up last in line. <laughs> You'll wind up far away from Jesus. You'll experience more frustration and emptiness. Why? Because whatever you achieve, whatever honor you receive, won't last. You'll need more. It's like a drug. And ultimately, you'll wind up with no honor. No honor whatsoever because honor only comes from God. In Joseph, we see a man who was honored by God in this life, but who never sought it for himself. And he eventually receives the greatest honor long after his death. The promise of God is fulfilled, and through Joseph's family, Jesus is born. The ultimate honor. We see that same mindset present in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2, Paul writes this. Make your own attitude that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of men. And when he had come as a man in his external form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I praise God that Jesus sought the honor of the Father, and that he did not seek his own human honor, but submitted to death that he could be raised and we could be saved. And seek your own honor. Or you can leave here today determined, above all, to seek Jesus Christ. You can wear yourself out trying to gain all that this world has to offer, trying to be paid back for the hardship you've endured. Or you can come to Jesus to have your deepest needs met. Your need for love. Your need for being valued your need to experience forgiveness and eternal life. Honor is God's to give, never ours to seek. I pray that you and I will all submit our lives to Jesus Christ and seek Him alone and leave the results to Him. Let's pray together. I have two goals. I want to encourage you and challenge you. I pray that you've been encouraged to know that God has not forgotten you, that just as Joseph was led out of his wilderness, so God will lead you one day out of yours. But be challenged, because the temptation will be there to seek your own honor. Remember the story of Joseph.
and his tremendous example. Remember the life of Jesus and his example. And identify with him and his death and his burial and his resurrection to say, Lord, have your way in me, whatever that may be. Submit to him today. Seek him. Seek Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and what a great challenge and encouragement it is. Drive it deep into our hearts, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together if you would. We'll